the podcast for the inquisitive diver. Hey there, dive buddies, and welcome to the show. Since becoming closer to and more aware of our blue world, I have noticed how many marvellous foundations, charities and organisations there are doing their bit. Equally so, I've also noticed the commercial entities that are seemingly polar opposite in their thought processes. Or are they? Rather than fighting to enforce a particular view, should we not be putting more effort into working together to not only provide awareness but also protect the ocean's inhabitants? My next guest has been the Managing Director of Sea Shepherd Australia for almost 14 years and is one of the directors of Sea Shepherd Global. Undoubtedly, Jeff Hansen has been involved in multiple discussions from both sides of the fence and on several occasions has found that working with the opposition brings up some unexpected and successful surprises. Jeff, welcome to the show, Chief. How are you doing? Oh, great. It's really good to be here on uh, Scuba Goat and, yeah, it's uh, great to connect with you, Matt. Ah, you're more than welcome on the show, buddy. Um, and I've got to right out the gate. I've just got to let everybody know that Jeff, he's gone above and beyond because the kids are out of school at the moment and he's sat in his car to do the recording. Good on you, mate. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, the things you have to do when, uh, you know, young hearts and minds, they just want to run right and, and so they should. <laughs> <laughs> damn right, damn right. <laughs> so... um do you want to give us a bit of a background on yourself? Because you're over in Perth at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, I'm in WA. I mean, I, um, this is where I guess I call home now, but I, I grew up in Melbourne um, opposite uh, Darabin Creek and um, I spent every day I could down there lifting rocks and catching lizards and snakes and just having a playground down there with my mates. And my first love was dinosaurs, but as I couldn't have them as pets, I, I quickly <laughs> moved to, to reptiles and... Um, yeah, I guess I always had a dream of growing up to be a wildlife vet, specialising in reptiles or working in Africa, saving animals from poachers. And um, yeah, for all the wrong reasons, I did a double degree in electronic engineering and computer science um, at La Trobe Uni in Bandura. And um, uh, in reality, it was slowly eating away at me. I was, you know, I worked in Germany, I worked in the States, which was great to see the world. But whenever I watched a nature documentary, I felt ill in the stomach and I thought I couldn't change my life. Um, and then I, um, yeah, I looked at Steve Irwin's life when he died and I thought, you know, he died at 44, which is quite young, mm. but he led a full life of passion. And I thought, what's the point of living to be 100 and do something you hate? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's not a life. Um, and so I started taking steps in other directions. I went and volunteered with Australia Zoo and I was like, well, that's, you know, kind of not really what I want to do. And then I met... Um, I was with my wife Marina, and we were on the on the Bunda um, Bunda Cliffs um, in southern Australia, which stretches for 100 kilometres long and 80 to 100 metres vertical. And looking over the coast, there we saw a mother and a calf, southern right whale. And Marina said, "I'm going to go back and start to help that sea shepherd mob." And you know, I just learned about sea shepherd and was blown away by the the words of Paul Watson and and the, and the actions of the volunteer crews and what they were doing, actively intervening to stop illegal whaling in the southern ocean and i just had to be a part of it so yeah I, I came back from australia zoo i met paul watson in Fremantle, and um i said to paul i've just come back from australia zoo and he said well i'm trying to name one of our ships to steve Irwin, and do you think you could help with that and i said well i've just come back from there i'll, I'll see what i can do with the connections i made and two weeks later while still working in it i i saw the, an email which said Steve Irwin it is. Um, Jeff, we have permission to name the ship to Steve Irwin. We'll get right on it, Paul. And I was really blown away by I thought, geez, I've only just started taking a step in this direction and look at already what 
had happened. And then I flew to Melbourne and got the ship ready for campaign, took 10 days off school and watched the uh, Terrio and christen and, and name the, the ship the Steve Owen and sail away to Antarctica to defend the whales from the Japanese harpoons. And, um, yeah, broke my heart not being on it. Um, yeah. but, on the, but on the third leg of that campaign, I got to go down to Antarctica and, yeah, see one of the most beautiful places on the planet, uh, an ancient world of ice and, you know, minkies, southern right whales, humpbacks, you know, um, you know, blue whales, chunks of ice with the Dali penguins on them and, and orcas storming through like the wolves of the sea, <laughs> you know, just incredible. And, and nature and it get, gave me a taste of what our oceans were like before us. And, mm. and um, I strongly believed, you know, we were heading in a position where I, I believe um, was away from where the Japanese whaling fleet was. And I you know, presented my hypothesis to Paul Watson and we changed course and, yeah, I kind of was caught up in the moment and stood back and thought, geez, what, what if I was wrong? <laughs> but, but luckily we had, um, yeah, we had harpoon ships on the radar um, trying to take us away from our position sitting in the fog. And then Paul asked me for where I believe the factory whaling ship to be, the Nishimaru, which is the one that if we find the Nishin, we can sit on it and block it from being able to transfer um, whales. When, in essence, if they can't, can't load dead whales and they can't kill live ones and that's one of our most effective tactics down there and mm. yeah we we encountered armed japanese coast guard throwing concussion grenades at us in australia's antarctic territory and we uh, saved over 500 whales and then yeah i presented a number of ideas on how we could grow sea shepherd in australia and paul asked me to to run it back in um 2008 so yeah and from then it's just been one thing after another, a, r- a real baptism of, of fire. Um, was was that that bit there? You know where you you've gone from sitting looking out over the bite to being on the ship with Paul and saying we need to go that way instead of this way. Is that all in one year? Is that all in two thousand and eight? Yeah, two thousand and six, late two thousand six was was standing at the Bunda Cliffs. Okay, and then two thousand and seven was sort of volunteering at Australia Zoo and. And then um, meeting Paul at the end of 2007 and then um, February 2008, the third leg of Operation Migaloo, mm. I was on the ship and um, with Paul, you know, in, as uh, as a quartermaster in the bridge. So, yeah, it, it happened quite quickly and I was definitely not a public speaker, but I started volunteering with a local Fremantle chapter and, you know, it just, um, they just flowed like all, all the, you know, all the stuff I was kind of keeping inside me about the natural world, you know, because at the time when I met Marina, I was, I met her at yoga. I was training for the West Australian Ironman. Mm. I was kind of doing lots of kilometres and on the bike and out running and thinking, looking out at nature and thinking I'm going to spend more time doing something with nature. I don't know how or when, but it's it's definitely, it's it's pulling me in, in that direction. Mm. It's obviously a very... Um a subject that's very close to your heart and stood you in good stead for, well, the next 14 years. Yeah, it's, I think we all have it as kids. You know, mm. you, our, our kids that grow up in the world, that we all love the natural world. We're still connected to it. But it's the, the, the way society's built that kind of tries to take us away from it and disconnect us from the natural world. Mm. Um, and I think that some of us, yeah, long for it and and feel very strongly about it. 
our, our whole lives. And um, I've always felt a, a deep connection to nature and, and even some things where, you know, I, I hear about the connection that Aboriginal people have and I've seen it firsthand that they have to the land and the sea. And some of the things that I've seen you wouldn't believe where I've walked down, um, we were in Whale Beach in northern beaches of Sydney and I was with a, the Murning Elder and, and Whale Songman Bunalori and we left the house together, we walked down to the beach, we stood at the ocean and he told me there was a big pot of dolphins out there mm. and I'd seen exactly what he had seen and looked out together and didn't see anything and a couple of minutes later a big pot of dolphins come through and I was just and I think that's the level of connection that we may never understand that you know first Australians have with the land and the sea and, and to and to each other mm. and one day I was out in the bush um actually in, in Victoria up near Panton Hill um going for a bushwalk through there with and I I stood there and I felt that there was kangaroos in the area and were walking along an incline and I just sensed that they were in the in the vicinity right close to us and then I looked up um, this hill and there was about four or five of them just standing next to the tree just still just looking looking at us so mm. I think we have we very much are connected and um, you know we I think we've we've somewhat lost that and and you know often sometimes you'll be in the garden and you'll be thinking about someone you haven't thought of for years and then all of a sudden the phone rings and it's them mm. like we always think we, it's still there we've just lost that ability to tap into it and i know that when um james cameron was you know he made that film avatar and you can see the the connection that the, the indigenous group have in the film to the plants and the animals and how it's all connected through a neural network and, you know, I've read the book, you know, The Hidden Life of Trees, which explains that trees are connected with this fungi neural network where they can communicate with each other. They can ensure that the younger generation of trees don't grow too fast so they get a good foundation. Or if there's, you know, trees in the forest that are doing, doing not doing well, they can send nutrients to some of those other trees in the forest to help them. Um, and yet I know that when Sam Worthington was, you know, getting ready for that role in Avatar that, um, he he spoke to some local um, Noongar um, elders to understand their connection to the land and the sea. So it's it's real and it's it's there and it's um, even scientifically proven. Um, mm. It's it's truly truly amazing. And then there's the whole, you know, explaining the the importance of the natural world to us from it's our life support. <laughs> I mean, it makes it possible for us to live here. Well, that's it. I mean, we are part of it, isn't we? Yeah, and I love that. Um, you know, I was with Paul Watson in, in many years ago down in Margaret River in Western Australia and um, he sat down with a, a bunch of school kids and he said, has anyone ever been on a spaceship? And all the kids are looking around at each other and he said, guess what, you're on one right now. This is Spaceship Earth hurtling through space. And like any spaceship, there's the passengers and the crew. The crew run this ship. The insects, the worms, the turtles, the sharks, the trees, the plankton, they regulate our climate. They take care of our waste. They provide us with the food that we eat and the air that we breathe. Who are we? We're just the passengers. We're just here having a good old time. Problem is we're killing off the crew. So we've got to protect the crew. And if everyone understood that in business and government and, and right through the board, 
we hopefully we shouldn't need these conservation movements or conservation fights and we have a government that actually ha- holds the ecology of of our planet you know right up there and instead of always focusing on the economy and infinite growth on a finite resource yeah it's a, it's a difficult one isn't it especially when you've got people who are, just don't have the knowledge and, and experience of, of of what it's all about uh, and, and in effect are completely oblivious to the importance of everything but mind you they if they're given the knowledge, they can. Like, I've seen people that have perceptions on Sea Shepherd and, and be that government, be that industry. And and when you just talk to them, not with ignorance, but to explain the importance of the natural world and talk about it in different ways, like Sir David Attenborough does with BBC and et cetera, like the more people that have that knowledge, the more that it becomes common, the more that it becomes the new norm, Um people will start to think about things differently and we have to change the way we live on the planet and as we can see you know that the money is is going to more investment in renewables um the price of coal and oil and and gas is definitely it's not being commercially viable anymore Mm -hmm. um and it just the whole saying is change is opportunity in, in disguise so you have to be optimistic um and i think we just need to continue the fight as long as we can to to have those environmental winds to bite us that time that we all that we wake up. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about environmental winds, um, I'm dying to get on the topic. Um, Operation Jedera. Um, I'm I'm just completely fascinated and in awe of this one. Uh, can you give us a bit of a background for those listeners that might not be aware of it? Yeah, well, 2015, I was in Adelaide. I met a fellow, Peter Owen who's the director of the Wilderness Society in South Australia. And he said that he'd put a call out to many groups to try and get them to help with um, a big fight he was facing, which was BP wanting to drill for oil in the Great Australian Bight in waters deeper, rougher, and more remote than the Gulf of Mexico, where they had their massive blowout there. Mm. Um, And I also found out that less than six months after that big blowout in the Gulf of Mexico, um, that the Australian government granted leases to BP to drill for oil in the Great Australian Bight, which is just, you know, at the time I really didn't know much about the bite. So with Mernie Elder, Bunna Laurie and um, Peter Owen and myself, we sat down and formed the, um, the Great Australian Bight Alliance and formed the strategy on how we could potentially stop BP from drilling for oil there. Mm-hmm. And um, we really looked at, I guess one of the things that had worked in the Kimberley, which was where we were successful in in many other groups and Indigenous as well, in, in stopping um, a massive gas hub from going through the middle of the world's biggest humpback whale nursery, was to take the Steve Irwin up there and showcase what we would all lose if the project went ahead. And so, in essence, we put together a voyage of, of expedition because when we were Googling these places that we were going to go to, Pearson Island, Noitz Reefs, St Francis Isles, Fenelon Island, there was very little information about these places. Um, and so, yeah, we basically la- launched the campaign Operation Jedera. And the reason we called it Jedera was because Mernie Elder Bunnalori, he told us the story of the great white whale Jedera, um, which went into the Great Australian Bight along the waters there and breathed life into the land and the sea. And that all the marine life that, go, that are in the bite 
um, through that area, go there to honour the journey of the great white whale Jedera. Mm-hmm. And what's there in the bite is <laughs> it's nature on steroids. I mean, it's one of the last big intact marine wilderness areas left on the planet. Um, you're talking deep sea canyons, updrailing of nutrients, giant squid, orcas, sperm whales, blue whales, humpbacks, one of the world's most significant southern right whale nurseries, you know, seals, dolphins, penguins, sharks, mako sharks, great white sharks. Um, the place is truly remarkable. And the offshore islands there, places like Pearson Island, they are, you, the welcoming party there is Australian endangered sea lions rushing out to meet you. There's long-nosed, long-nosed fur seals. There's, you know, black-footed rock wallabies, peninsula dragons, Cape Barren geese. And then, you know, I've been diving there with, um, you know, the South Australian Parks team mm. and the water quality is incredible, the, the visibility and then the marine life there. It's just so healthy and rich, you know, harlequin fish and southern blue devils and, you know, it's just – and, you know, when we arrived at Pearson, which was 70 kilometres off the coast, off the Air Peninsula, you, you know, you had to wait for the right conditions to land at that beach there and even then it was quite tricky. And there's such so many rocks where there's, you know, baby um, seals underneath them, be that, you know, Australian sea lions or the long-nosed fur seals. And it shows that if there was a spill in the bite and the spill modelling showed it, it could impact much of southern Australia from western Australia right around to New South Wales, that places like Pearson, which are on par with the Galapagos, would mm. be lost. They'd be uh, we, we've, got to, we've got to put it into perspective there as well because... As a as a non Aussie, you know, I've only been here three years, so I've done a, a lot of learning in the last three years. But prior to that, I knew literally nothing about Australia. So there's a lot of people that listen to this show that are outside Australia, and to give them an idea of the size of the location we're looking at, um, when BP did their um, estimates on what would occur should a spill occur, i.e., how far the oil damage would stretch. It's over 12,000 kilometres. It's huge. 12,000 know, is crazy. Because you're dealing with a sea state that is the biggest in the world, you know, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. You know, there's nothing between Australia and Antarctica. Yeah. Um, and you, you're dealing with, you know, deep seas. Um, and there is, in the Gulf of Mexico, you've got quite an industrial area where there's plenty of other vessels and support rigs to handle the spill. Mm. But in the Great Australian Bight, there's nothing. There's no oil and gas there. So if there was a blowout, there's nothing there to handle the impact. And you're not going to be able to do anything about a spill there because of the sea state, the conditions, the canyons, etc. So all you're going to be able to do is spray dispersant everywhere. And we know that the dispersants that some of them were used in the Gulf of Mexico made the spill 52 times more toxic. <laughs> um, so this stuff, and even BP, when they, you know, through an FOI request that was done, found that um, BP actually said that, you know, one of the benefits if there was a spill would be to create jobs in the cleanup effort. I mean, oh, and, 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 and the, the NOPSEMA actually wrote back and said, look, I, I think you better take, take that bit out. <laughs> but, but in the end, BP pulled out and then the next, the next cab off the rank was Chevron. Hmm. They pulled out and then we had um, Equinor, which was formerly known as Stat Oil, a Norwegian company. Hmm. And they were the last big oil and gas company to pull out. So there's still a number of leases there. We're still working on it. Hmm. Uh, we want to see a greater protection for the bite. And we want to see an end to seismic in our oceans. Um, 
you know, seismic is so destructive to our marine life um, from plankton right through to whales. And do, you want to, do you want to explain that to me, mate? Yeah, so seismic is something that is used by a lot of the oil and gas companies to, you know, effectively, you know, blast, you know, sound waves through down to the ocean floor and, and then get a readout so they can see what, you know, where there are oil and gas deposits in, mm. in the ocean. But, you know, a lot of the um, sonic blasts and the impact that it does, it's, it has shown to actually cause impact to cetaceans right through to, to plankton. Hmm. Um, you know, we're talking about animals that are, you know, could be down, could be, um, you know, sperm whales and, and all sorts of other whales where it causes hemorrhaging in the brain. And effectively, they just have to get out the ocean and often they strand or beach themselves. And autopsies have shown, you know, blood coming out freckly through their ears. Uh, and causing hemorrhaging of the brain. Um, the other type of noise in our oceans is obviously um, sonar from our our submarines and and you know um, navy operations as well. Mm. That has a big impact on cetaceans as well. There's been footage of documentation of you know a navy vessel going through and a pod of orcas just storming towards the coast to get, to get out of the water because of the the noise that's just impacting them so badly. Wow. Um, and then there's shipping noise as well, which, you know, our ships all over the world. And it's really well documented in the film um, uh, Sonic Sea. Mm-hmm. And, and it just showcases, you know, the impacts that humans have had on our oceans um, through sound because, you know, our, our world is very much driven by sight. You know, we're up here and we can see as far as as light can travel, you know, out into the galaxies. And like air is an incredible medium um, for light. Um, our oceans and water is an incredible medium for sound. Where blue whales used to be able to communicate with each other from one side of the planet to the other, mm. and so when you think about that, that that is their way to navigate and communicate. That we're deafening out the oceans, and that's so sad that we've done that. Um, and like because of because of ignorance, and what we're seeing now is that even fishing companies like um, you know the tuna or or other um, lob rock lobster, etc., that they are actually asking, um, you know, they're joining forces to see inquiries up, which just got up recently. There's an inquiry got up on seismic generations from Senator Peter Wish Wilson of the Greens, and the reason he got that inquiry up because of backing from the commercial fishing sector, mm. because they're seeing the impacts of seismic um, on their fisheries as well, because it's impacting lobsters and plankton. And so even in some cases, they're asking to be compensated when uh, oil and gas companies have come through and, and done their seismic work. So, yeah, it's it's another can of worms that um, we, we need to address. I mean, best way to look after the oceans is just leave it alone. Just, talk, just talking about the bite there, um, I did watch the video that goes with Operation Jalera. Um In fact, I've watched it probably six times now in the last week. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> I think it's fantastic, um, and I urge any anyone to watch it. The thing that I actually really loved about it was when the old boys sat up on top of the um, the bite, looking out to sea, and we talk about, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Jadara being a, a a white whale, and lo and behold, there's a, a white calf that rocks up in front of him and stays for an hour or two, doesn't it? Yeah, so. As I mentioned, we named the campaign Operation Jedera and in honour of, of Bunalori and, and the Murning and, and their dreaming. And 
when we arrive at Hedabite, um, which is, you know, you can s- stand there at, at the platform and, and count at the time 50, 60 mother and calf pairs of southern right whales with their calves, uh, incredibly important nursing grounds there. Mm. And often you'll even see if, you know, because you get some big sharks through there, you get huge, <laughs> great, great, great whites. And they'll come in trying to look for an opportunity to, you know, grab one of the calves. Mm. And so they've noticed that the the mothers will actually form a form a group and put the calves in the middle and protect the calves calves that way. Yeah. But Loria, our Murning Older, was standing at the at the edge of the the cliffs and he was, you know, using his clap sticks and and singing and doing ceremony and welcoming the whales whales in because that 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 relationship goes back to you know, thousands of years to, to millennia. Um, and he was standing there and he had um, you know, a mother come over, southern right whale, and sit right in front of him and a white calf um, right in front of him. And so I, I remember standing there. We designed the logo for the campaign and I, I very much wanted it to be very, um, have an emotional feel and, and connection with it. And so the, the logo had the, you know, the Bunda Cliffs, which stretch for 100 kilometres long, 80 to 100 metres vertical, turquoise ocean and Jeddah of the white whale. Mm. And I'm standing there at, 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 at Head of Bite with a Murning Elder and, you know, we've got our T-shirts on with the logo on it and here's a white calf right in front of us. You know, it's just It's just uncanny. Remarkable. You, you stood inside your own logo. <laughs> yeah. And I just think it's, there's there's too much of that that happens, you know, for it to be coincidence. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've got to agree. I mean, and I'm sure there's many divers out there as well that probably think the same. As you know, you, you go looking for particular species when you you know want to film them or take camera shots or anything, like that, or even just experience it. And those times, and I've had a few now where you've been in the water and there's been quite a lot of other divers and let's say, for example, a whale shark or a manta ray is off in the distance, or even more recently, a mola mola. And you see the cavalry charge of all the divers chasing after it to, you know, live the experience. And on several occasions, just had that little moment in my head thinking, oh, she's going to turn left in a minute. And you end up just swimming at 90 degrees um, away from everyone. And uh, the dive guides or your dive buddies are like, you know, what the hell do you think you're doing it's going that way it's okay come this way come this way and sure enough you know it comes back round and you have that little moment and you can still see the cavalry charge following the whale shark as she comes over and gives you a little wink on the way past and it's a sensational sensational feeling and it is it's almost like this link that you're talking about I f- that's what i feel i feel like there's a, a link there too a special moments yeah, I think animals can sense it. You know, when when we're when we're quiet, it's a bit like they they talk about great whites that can tell when we're calm, when our heart when our heart rates are, are racing. Mm. You know, and and I think that's the same with with nature. They can sense how people are re- reacting and responding. Mm. Um, I often find with diving, I I get frustrated being in a dive group where you you know you can't constantly on the move. Yeah, you know when you if, I like to just sometimes sit and watch and see what happens. Mm. You know, um, a bit like, you know, being traveling in Europe and you find a nice plaza or plucker and just sit there and watch the world go by and watch the day to day happenings of life. And that's the thing, you know, you're, you're a visitor in, in, 
in the world in the oceans at, at some reef or some ecosystem or some particular area which is a number of animals home and they're going about their daily lives and and to spend some time you know I'd rather spend you know half an hour sitting in one spot and just watching you yeah. know and see yeah. and see what evolves uh, quite a lot of people in Papua New Guinea do that especially the older older uh, divers that nice didn't want to move around just sit them on top of the reef 4 or 5 meters yeah. leave them there for an hour and a half we loved it yeah yeah watch the world go by yeah it's a beautiful thing and i mean it's interesting like you hear those stories where you know someone that's looked after elephants for you know many much of their life and been a caretaker for elephant um you know orphans etc and then that particular person has passed away and the day that they pass away a whole group of elephants have come back into camp mm. and paid their respects and no one's you know sent them an sms or anything <laughs> and there's so many stories like that yeah you know, that they, they have this connection as well you know g'day scooby goat listeners rod here producer of the show i hope that you're enjoying this episode and that you're subscribed and following the pod on your favorite app please keep an eye out for the all new scooby goat website coming soon now back to matt and the show um, let's let's have a look at some of the campaigns, shall we? Let's go. Let's go. All right. <laughs> I'm just going to list them off if you want to give a, a bit of a background to them and a bit of an overview. How's that? Sounds good. Ready? Um, Operation Dolphin Bycatch. Yeah, so that's uh, led up by our French director, Lamia, and she's one of our six global directors um, to document what's happening with the you know, it's a it's a legal fishing fleet off of France, mm-hmm. but a bycatch of upwards of ten thousand dolphins a year. So, showcasing what's going on there, which is, and even sometimes bringing dolphin carcasses into the heart of Paris to say, well, this is still going on, and this is the impact that um, you know our, our you know of eating seafood is having. Um, we go on about Taji and his ten thousand dolphins getting killed every year by illegal fishery off our off our coast. So. Yeah, and um, even to the point we had um, New York Times on one of our ships and we had a fisherman saying, oh, we never catch them because we've got pingers in our nets. And this particular fisherman pulled in a, a net um, with New York Times on board and there was a dolphin caught in the net. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's um, it's been a very successful campaign and even featured in um, Seaspiracy. Yeah, yeah. And um, it, is this? It, it's still occurring every year, isn't it? It's not been resolved yet yeah it's still ongoing and it's still gathering more and more support from within france to put pressure on the government to see some action so mm. yeah it's still ongoing what is, what is it with i know we're going to talk about the other operations and campaigns and whatever but what is it with governments why can't why can't they actually listen um you know from from your experiences you must have spoken with a, a few of them or at least communicated with them why why is there such um why, why do they avoid actually taking action and just stopping all the crap that's going on? I think because they they don't like to choose one side or the other and often governments will choose industry over NGOs and conservation. So that's you, ne- you need to build up a campaign to the point that it's so strong that it becomes political, that, it, that it's going to be they're going to not get certain key people in those seats uh, back in the next election. Um, so ultimately... Uh, very few governments do the right thing as in what's what's best for 
humanity and best for the the nation um, because they're worried about the impacts on the next the next election. Mm. So, and you do have, for instance, you know, wreck fishermen and and commercial fishing are are a very powerful voice in Canberra, and we also have an issue where we have you know political um, you know corporate donations as well. So, you know, that's that's another big big impact that you know the Greens have fought to try and stop corporate donations at a government level mm. but both the labor and the liberal parties have blocked that because they get those donations and that 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 impacts you know political decisions as well so there's there's a lot of stuff that needs to be sorted um to s- stop us having these fights mm. and it's someone with a bit of balls in in parliament to say enough's enough isn't it yeah and you know every time that they have tried you know in the past even you know, to try and see some real action on climate, um, then they've seen certain seats where they still want to have a coal mine and they're worried about coal jobs, et cetera, et cetera, that they're going to lose those those seats in those positions. So it's sometimes political suicide to do the right thing. Mm. But then there is the fact that these governments and people at times haven't gone into these areas and say, look, we're going to have these announcements. We need to shift away from coal. It's not good for your you know, health with black lung disease. It's not good on the planet. But you're not going to be left without a job. We're going to transition you. We're going to work towards getting you out of these, 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 this, this industry, like Germany have done with you know, closing down coal there. Hmm. So it's just a, a lack of, I think, um, you know, vision and, and communication and, and strategy. Um, and I think the three-year term doesn't help as well. Yeah. Yeah, so it's fear of missing out on seats and and the money that comes with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you you mentioned coal there as well. Um, I'm just looking through the list. There's uh, Operation Reef Defence. That's the one to do with the GBR, isn't it? Yeah. So that's in you know the Adani coal mine, Adani Carmichael coal mine, where part of the Stop Adani Alliance, um, and effectively where they were going to. They're still you know it's being slowed up as much as we can. Mm. But you know, massive coal mine up there from Adani, an Indian, um, you know, company that um, you know muscling in on building this you know massive coal mine and having huge ships go in and out and across the, the Great Barrier Reef. So, yeah, we're part of that alliance, and the the way that that's worked is really just to we took the Steve Irwin up to the coast to to raise awareness and show support of of that um, that fight, um, and then also. You know, with the alliance, they're working behind the scenes to try and stop, you know, in certain companies and banks from providing insurance and financial support to that to that project. So it's definitely, you know, an ongoing fight. But, yeah, I, I just don't see how coal is commercially viable anymore. And it's the same with, with gas as well. Mm. And it's, I mean, this is coal that's just been, you know, delivered back to India, isn't it? It's not, um, it's not for use here. Yeah, that's correct, and I think there's quite a lot of the coal is going to be used for some, you know, producing some um, some plastic plant as well to make more plastic. So, right. you know, in terms of you know the you know the energy required as well. So yeah, coal is just it's just got to go, and it's 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 moving that way globally. Um, but you know, Australia, if you measure our emissions in terms of you know what also we export and leave the country, where basically one of the world's worst polluters um, per capita. Mm. And and our action on climate is ranking about dead last. It's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, the size of the country and the 
the natural sort of resources we've got here with the sunlight and and there's so much more that can be done yeah we have a country that has so much sun so much wind and so much resources in terms of mining and what we could pull out of the ground to make more you know batteries and and you know electricity mm-hmm. there's all this opportunity for growth and jobs in the in the renewable sector um recently we've closed down you know holden and other car manufacturing plants here when we should have been on the front foot and transition them to electric cars like australians really want to get on board and buy electric cars but there any a lot of the cars come from outside australia mm-hmm. and as a result, they're hit with huge luxury car taxes. So the Australians are really want to get on board with this, but they're let down by the government. Yeah. So, and there's just all this opportunity um, right here in this country to be a leader in renewables and and even car manufacturing and everything, but it doesn't get the support because of decades and decades of fossil fuel companies going into Canberra with their political donations, and then those industries are subsidised and a huge amount. Yeah, yeah. Well, fingers crossed we'll get someone who could. When are you, I'll tell you what, you take his job. You sort it out. <laughs> I have been approached a couple of times, but I just feel a lot of politicians end up doing, you know, things that are, you know, so, so wasting so much time on areas that, you know, dealing with slush funds and what someone's secretary is up to in, as opposed to actually doing the work. Mm. Um, you know, and I think that's the thing I like about Sea Shepherd is, you know, we can produce real tangible results for the oceans uh, and we're becoming more and more effective every day. Indeed, indeed. Now, I did mention in my introduction to the episode about how you've worked with industry to come to resolutions before. And I think it was during your TED Talk um, or it was a video. I've lost count of how many videos I've watched now in the last week. But um, there's one in particular that actually struck a chord with you. Would it be fair to say that? Yeah, so we've been successful in stopping whaling in the Southern Ocean. And, you know, the Australian government and New Zealand government, uh, kudos to them. They took Japan to the International Court of Justice and found Japan's whaling to be illegal. Mm. Uh, In the end, they did pull out and, you know, over... Over a decade of campaigning, we saved the lives of over 6,000 whales and the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary is, in fact, a sanctuary for the whales. But those campaigns took up a huge amount of time, money and resources um, that meant we couldn't do really anything else. Um, And when we got back from an Antarctic mission in March, we were pretty much getting ready till December to get ready to go again. Mm. So with the end of whaling... um, we looked at illegal fishing in the Southern Ocean and namely the Patagon Antarctic toothfish poaching, a deep-sea codfish um, which is sought after for its white um, oily flesh, um, very little bones, uh, otherwise known as chili and sea bass in the restaurants. But there were six vessels, one by Interpol, that were out there, you know, flouting the laws, um, you know, f- fleeing and, and, and unable to be, you know, detained. Interpol was after them and... Within a couple of days of reaching the searching grounds, our vessel, the Bob Barker, captain by Peter Hammerstead, found the most notorious poacher, the Thunder. Um, and we notified the Thunder, you're not supposed to be here, you're, you're illegal, there's an interpolar purple notice out for you. And they said, oh, we're just, we're just transitioning, we're just passing through. And I thought, like, <laughs> you've just dumped all your, all your gill nets uh, and you're on the run. And they, they just ran. So the Bob Barker began to shoot. Mm-hmm. And our vessel, the Sam Simon, 
um, they also um, they came in and found the location of the, the, the Thunder's gill nets and put them in over about three weeks in icy cold conditions and those nets stretched for 72 kilometres long. 72K? 72K is long, yeah. Jesus. And But that, that sea chase stretched for 110 days at sea and during that sea chase, um, I'd recently met the guys from Austral Fisheries, one of the legal toothfish companies, mm-hmm. and they had perceptions on us and we had perceptions on them. They thought we were a bunch of cowboys and just there for media, mm-hmm. and they quickly learned that, hang on, you guys have reached the search grounds, found the most notorious poacher, and you're onto them. You're notifying governments, you're notifying Interpol to come out and arrest the ship. And so I guess a bit of a relationship um, it developed between uh, David Carter, the CEO of Austral Fisheries, and myself, and we realised that we saw the same key threats to the oceans and more, illegal fishing, plastics, climate, and threats to vulnerable and endangered species. So David said, well, we've got a vessel leaving um, Norway en route to Mauritius. Perhaps we might be able to rendezvous and join up with, with the chase. And so one morning the Thunder captain woke up and found two conservation ships mm-hmm. and an industry ship on, on his stern. <laughs> and, and that sent a very powerful message because, you know, it's one thing for conservation ships to be, you know, chasing poachers on the high seas, but mm. an industry ship, that was, that was something new. Yeah. Um, and so that sent a very powerful message, message out there, and, um, which, was, which was fantastic, you know, to see that. And even the words that the captain of um, the Austral ship said to the captain of the Thunder were really inspiring, saying, you know, you know you, we've got to look after the sea. You, you know, you've got to stop taking and taking and, and, and do, do the right thing by our children. And um, the captain of the Thunder was definitely shaken by it. And in the end, he, he scuttled his, in, his own ship off the principal island nation of Sao Tome and we had to rescue the crew and took them into the authorities. And the office, officers got three years jail and 15 million euros in fines. But um, in about in about two years, we had, you know, the six vessels wanted by Interpol were all out of action. Um, a number we found in port. We found them in the Southern Ocean and then we located them in port and then we notified the authorities and they went out and detained the ships. Mm. Um, one vessel, the, um, the Viking, we found in Indonesia's waters. We notified the fisheries minister at the time, Susie. She sent out the Navy, detained it, and then, and then subsequently blew it up. <laughs> so... And th- and those campaigns gave birth because of because of one of the countries that said they would arrest the thunder was Gabon if it came in its waters. Those um, yeah, those that that chase of the thunder hmm. gave birth to discussions with Gabon, which then led to the now eight government partnerships we have in Africa, which is producing incredible results for oceans. Yeah, now that's a that's a huge element of Sea Shepherd right now, isn't it? Yeah, and that's I think you know testament to Peter Hammerstead, our head of campaigns globally, and mm-hmm. was the captain of the Thunder, and you know his his vision as well, um, backed up by our our global directors, mm-hmm. that you know Gabon had a very small coast guard, they couldn't patrol their entire two hundred nautical mile EEZ, but they had you know EU fishing fleets operating in their waters that pay money to fish there, but they never inspected some of these vessels because they couldn't get out there and reach them, even though they were welcome to. Um, or, or go out and, and stop illegal fishing vessels coming into their waters. Mm-hmm. So we said, well, we've got the ship, the, the mostly volunteer crew and the fuel, and you've got the authority, so why don't we partner up? 
And so, in essence, we provide the tools in order for them to make the arrests. We also provide a training platform. We bring expertise on board um, to be able to assist with that training, you know, Israeli defence um, expertise as well. And in the end, we now, they've been so successful, those partnerships in Gabon, you know, over four years ago now, that we have eight government partnerships in, in Africa and we facilitate the rest of, you know, over 60 illegal fishing vessels. Um, yeah. And in terms of tangible outcomes, in places like Liberia, the artisanal fishermen, they can see the fish returning for the first time in decades. You've literally and just taken the words out of my mouth. I was going to ask that very question. Yeah, and, they've, and they're actually, you know, these people um, live on the beaches in tin, tin, tin huts. Mm-hmm. They have nothing else but, you know, a livelihood to either, you know, eat or to, you know, as their livelihood to catch fish, to sell to get their kids to school, this is all these people have. And they've been yelling at the governments for years for help because they've had these massive trawlers come through and industrial fleets mm. running over their wooden canoes, sometimes killing them. Even recent stories of Chinese fleets coming through there and pouring petrol on them and setting them alight. Sure. I mean, just crazy stuff. And so to be able to help, not only is it great from a conservation perspective and protecting you know, th- these incredible, unique marine wilderness areas, um, but also, to you know, the impact on, on local artisanal fishermen. Mm. Um, the president of Liberia gave us the highest military honour for our work tackling illegal fishing there. Um, and then also, once again, just showcasing the impact that we're seeing. With illegal fishing, there's such a link with slavery, you know. Mm. much So much of illegal fishing fleets out there, uh, there's slaves on board because... The fishing fleets that have, have travelled further and further to, to get the catch because they've fished out waters closer to home, they can't get their costs of their maintenance of the, of the ship down, they can't get their fuel costs down, but they can get the costs of their crew down by simply not paying them. Yeah. And if you don't like it, they'll throw you over sea. At, 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 you know, and some people have been at sea for five years and not able to get home. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> but what a... Um you know, with, with what you're doing in Africa there, it's a huge deterrent as well, isn't it? So where it's been pilfered and then just having that presence there now of, of having boats in the water that have got people on board that can take action and inspect the vessels, those that are trying to dodge um, the legal routes, uh, I'm sure are staying uh, more vigilant and, and if not, you know, staying well out of the way. Yeah, well, I mean, it only takes a handful of arrests and the word gets out. Mm. And ev- even the legal ones, the ones with licenses to be there in some places, mm-hmm. have been leaving the entire EEZ because really? they don't want to be inspected. You know, <laughs> you know so, so there's that huge, you know, opportunity there that you can protect a vast area of marine ecosystem. You know, mm. it's huge. Mm. Um, you know, and David, um, David, um, Yes, David Attenborough on the recent um, A Perfect Planet episode five where he narrates our work in um, in Africa and he talks about how we arrested one vessel, the Libico 2, mm-hmm. um, which was set up to process deep, deep sea sharks uh, for, for shark liver oil and that vessel had the ability to wipe out over half a million sharks a year yeah. and with one arrest we were able to, to save that. And so, you know, David's, so David's talking about you know, the importance of sharks in our oceans and also that the healthier our oceans are, the more rich and biodiverse they are, 
the greater they stand a chance in fighting against the impacts of the climate as well as the world's greatest carbon sink. So it all ties in, you know, with, with you know, the, the more, you know, illegal fishing vessels that we stop uh, and the, the breather that we give our oceans also ties in with the climate fight as well as our work in the bite and our work um, cleaning up our beaches around Australia and, you know, working with Indigenous rangers in Arnhem Land, you know, removing tons and tons of marine debris and, and, and nets from critical sea turtle nesting habitat and sacred country to the, the Yongle people. Mm. Where was that um, Where was that huge haul of uh, rope you guys dragged in? Um, see, I've watched I, too many videos now. <laughs> there was there was one, um, you're probably thinking of the one off um, at Cocos Keeling Islands. That's it. Where yeah. it was, yeah, a, a huge, looked like a big mooring line or um, it was a huge amount of rope that was just, you know, took our team a lot of effort to get in out of the ocean. That was um, But, yeah, Cocos is, it's been tough for our crew going, you know, volunteers there getting there and um, and cleaning up there because they're just, they're just so amazed by how much rubbish and marine debris is washing up on the coast there. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's still beautiful parts of Cocos that, you know, I guess a bit sheltered from the, the rubbish and still a beautiful place to go and visit, but there's still a lot of work to do to, to clean it up. And a lot of that mm. trash there is coming from Asia. Yeah. Um, but our crew, I, I spoke to them as they were there and they felt so in such despair because they're cleaning up the beaches and some of the plastic they're pulling up, um, p- pulling off the beaches just disintegrates in their hands. Mm. And as they're pulling it up, um, cleaning it up off the beach, they're looking out to sea and they can see more just coming and coming and coming. And they're like, what's the point? And it's like, well, you know, not fighting these fights is not an option. You know, you you just, to know where our planet's headed and do nothing, that's just suicide. We've just got to do what we can. And it's just same mentality we had with previous wars, you know, we, we didn't go, well, the opposition's too big and, and what's the point? We just give up. No, we all fought. And that's, I think that's the whole message here is if there's one thing worth fighting for on this planet, it's, it's life and looking after the natural, natural beauty of our world. And, yeah, we've made a mess, but we've got to start somewhere, you know, and start cleaning it up. For sure, yeah. And do you think um, the, the, new gen- the younger generations that are coming through are much more aware than... Um those that are, you know, our age and older, are they more open to listen? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm inspired by, I think the curriculum now is teaching more kids about the natural world and the impacts, what's happening with plastics and climate, et cetera, et cetera. We have the school strikers out there on the street calling for action on climate. I was part of a panel a couple of weeks ago um, talking about climate. I sat next to a girl that was 15 years old that just talked the Australian government to the federal court um, and found that the Australian federal environment minister has a duty of care for future generations. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's at 15, I was nowhere near doing stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, it's inspiring to see where, where kids are at and, and what's coming down the line. And to me, that gives me a lot of hope because I think, yeah, we've, we're having some great environmental wins, yeah. but environmental wins are only temporary um, because you live to fight them another day. But if we've got this younger generation coming through and we can hold the line and we can bite a small time for more of us to wake up and those younger generation voting more for the planet, then hopefully our jobs will get a lot easier in the future. Mm. 
Mm. Operation Pahu? Pahu? Yeah, so that's um, in New Zealand. We've got the, the last of the, uh, well, we've got the Marwa dolphins, which are probably one of the most endangered small dolphins in the world. They're incredibly important to Maori culture. Mm. Um, then we've got, you know, the, the, all the different other small species of dolphins that are being impacted by fishing gear and, and fishing nets over there, caught in the gill nets uh, as well. Mm. So our team in New Zealand's there just trying to see what we can do to raise awareness about, you know, if nets are being put in the wrong place or placed in ex- exclusion zones that are supposed to be, you know, net free for the, the local, you know, Maui and, and Hector dolphins. So, yeah, there's uh, a lot of work, good work we're doing there. It's, it's only a small team in New Zealand. There's no one no one paid over there, mm. but they do regular beach cleanups uh, and do what they can, um, absolutely. So, and New Zealand's obviously had a, a lot of crew members over the years, you know, on our boats down in the Southern Ocean defending the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary, be that Australian and New Zealand, Antarctic Territory, places like the Ross Sea, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's – um, and I think that's where, you know, Paul Watson started Sea Shepherd 1977, um, you know, and it was really – I don't think Paul expected it to get where it's got today. It was kind of get a ship and go out and find the the, 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 um, the pirate whaling vessel, the Sierra, the most notorious poaching vessel. and um, locate that vessel and, and take it out of action, mm. um, which he did and, you know, which was just remarkable back in the day what Paul did. And I guess it's really grown from a Save the Whales movement um, to a Save the Oceans movement and yeah. um, it just gets stronger and stronger. Um, it's Funding is always an issue. Like we, I think Sea Shepherd historically has been incredibly good at delivering results um, and probably lacks the... The, the funding to, to support it, but we're definitely something we're, that we're working on. Yeah. And it's ever-evolving, that's the thing. I mean, it, it, everything grows from somewhere, and Paul started it, and look at the size of it now. Where's it going to be in another 30, 40, 50 years? I think that's the thing with Paul is that, you know, when I, you know, named, when I facilitated the naming of the, the vessels of Steve Owen, and I spent like two weeks and, you know, always, you know, working really hard to get that that um, outcome happen. The email I got from Paul was, hi, Jeff, we have permission to name the ship, the Steve and we'll get right on it, Paul. And I read it and I went, oh, wow, that's amazing. But then I read it again and was like, he didn't even say thanks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and And then I understood Paul's mentality really early on as the founder of Sea Shepherd. I didn't do it for Paul. I wasn't doing it for him. Mm. I was doing it for the movement and doing it for the oceans. And that's the thing I really understood really early on about Sea Shepherd and, and also about Paul is that, you know, he asked me to, you know, be the, you know, run Sea Shepherd in Australia back in 2008 and he's never micromanaged me, mm. you know, and he's, he said that the best thing to do with power uh, is just to give it away. Yeah. You know, and that's the way that Sea Shepherd has been able to operate the way we've done over the years on a you know budget globally of about fifteen million dollars because it's about imagination and passion and um, you know people from all over the world, mostly volunteers, a handful of staff globally, um, and that sort of ethics and values um, is from the top all the way through. Like our six global directors have all been on the front line. They've all been on the ships, be that in Antarctica, 
you know, play off Africa. They've all been on the front line defending our oceans. So they they all come with a love of the natural world, a deep understanding of its ecological importance, and you know, a real passion for being lean and effective. I mean, I mm. I'm the managing director for Sea Shepherd Australia. I'm one of the six global directors, and yet I run Sea Shepherd from a donated office desk in Fremantle from a company that UDLA um, Urban Design Landscape Architects. They're passionate about what, what we do. I said, look, there's a free desk, free coffee, free internet. Get Go for it. <laughs> and I, I love that. I love that we can be, you know, have not have these big offices. And, you know, when we, we meet donors, we can say hand on heart, you know, that they're part of this, they're part of the victories. Mm. There is, these victories are as much our supporters and donors as our crew on the front line. And, you know, we're not building all this capacity um, in terms of, big offices and wasting donors' money. Yeah, yeah, it's been put to good use. has to be. Um, yeah. Not political and, seats. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's important, you know, it's it's important to say hand on heart that, you know, I wouldn't waste my time with an organisation that wasn't delivering tangible results and wasn't true to its values hmm. right down the line. You know, our ships are all plant-based ships. There's no meat ran on products on our ships. Our merchandise is all eco-ethical, you know, right down the line, you know, organic cottons and dyes and no sweatshops, et cetera. Mm. Um, and any Sea Shepherd event always has to be plant-based, you know. So we follow everything right down the line. Yeah, yeah. It's good to see. And there's plenty of, um, you know, you talk about the volunteers and everyone doing their, their good bit around the country and indeed around the world. Um, I see a lot of markets and market stalls um being very active here in australia and i think it's marvelous absolutely marvelous well these volunteers are you know they they're they're mums and dads and people with lives and they're giving up their spare time to get up at sometimes it's dark to pack the car to go down to the local markets and 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 raise funds and awareness they're on no commission they're not paid um, or they're organising a clean-up and they get down and they clean up the beach, but then they've got to go home and, and get all the gloves and all the tubs and everything and wash it all out and get it get it dried for the next next time and do a clean-up. You know, these people are getting paid nothing. Yeah. Um, and that's when, when you think, you know, in, in me, in my position, I've done all, all that as well, but it's also I feel lucky that I've done every role in Sea Shepherd that we have now paid in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so that comes with a great level of um, respect and understanding and appreciation for what they do. But also when we have our volunteers out there working so hard um, because they know that we're lean and effective, but that also keeps me honest as well yeah. to know that there's people out there that are giving up so much. So we have to be you know, true to our, our values all the way down the line. Yeah, and I applaud each and every one of them. Bravo. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> um, Jeff, I think we'll um, we'll wrap it up for now. Um, however, um, thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks, Matt. And, it's, and it's spending been a real, real delight. <laughs> spending a good portion of your afternoon sat in your car. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm just parked right opposite the Swan River, and in fact, um, looking out over the dash, all I can see is water. So, Beauty. and um, this is often I run through here on my morning run sometimes or ride. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've even have seen um, bottlenose dolphins here, and I've even seen the odd bull shark uh, in the shallows here. Ooh. So, yeah, lovely, it's, stuff. Uh, beautiful, beautiful. It's it's a good place to live. Um, 
But uh, yeah, thanks, Matt, for having us on the show, mate. I've really enjoyed meeting with you and connecting with you. And um, yeah, we've whatever, however we use the ocean for oxygen or diving or whatever, we've we've got to be custodians for our oceans. They are 100%. our primary life support. A hundred percent. And I openly invite any Sea Shepherd representative to come on the show and and tell me their experiences as well. I I really uh, enjoy that. Um, we've got a new website coming out soon and it all has uh, small bio pages. So, for example, uh, this episode, Jeff's episode, will have a little bio on Jeff and a few quickfire questions, but all the links to Sea Shepherd and everything that we've spoken about in the show will be in there as well. Uh, and the same goes for anyone else who comes on the show. So put the word out in Sea Shepherd, get them on board. I've uh, been more than keen to have them tune in and, and create some more magic. That sounds great, Matt. I, I know they'd love to sign up and have a chat. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see where this uh, this relationship leads. But it's all it's all good, good all, stuff. All good stuff. All exciting. Yeah. yeah. Oh, hey, i tell you what I didn't ask you before you go. Um, Scooby Goat, I, I, I keep forgetting to ask the question. Um, greatest of all time dive. Probably the most difficult question you're going to get asked this year. Mm. Yeah, that's that's. I feel very spoilt because I've I've dived the, the Galapagos. It was my first dive, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was quite remarkable. Um, and I've you know I've, I've done you know snorkeling in, in Tonga with humpbacks, and I've done snorkeling in an Exmouth with um, whale sharks and um, manta rays, which was probably one of the most enjoyable experiences. Just laying in the water it was it wasn't diving i was just snorkeling but i had you know mantas just coming through one after the other mm. um probably about 30 of them in a feeding pattern and they were probably 10 meters away from me at the start but in the end they were right next to me where i had to move back otherwise they were gonna they were gonna hit me <laughs> um i really enjoyed that that experience um diving i mean I've, i feel lucky to have dived at pearson island it's such a healthy marine environment so lush um and just you know i remember seeing the film crew they were trying to get some footage for um, northern pictures um, and filming a, um, a piece for abc and they were trying to get all the australian sea lions and and they were all over there and, and probably about 20 meters away from me and i just sat on the bottom and i had five or six australian sea lions with me yeah. I had I had um, a female just sitting on the bottom, just looking at me, staring at me, and a big male with a with a neck that was just so thick, <laughs> and his face right in front of me, and I just sat there and I was just like, "How good's this?" You know, yeah. beautiful clear water. I was just relaxed and breathing, and have these sea lines just you know connecting with me. So, yeah, that's probably my one of my favourite experiences um diving absolutely it's pretty remarkable stuff of, of a place that very few australians know about and i think that's where you mentioned about the bite i've shown footage of the bite to australians mm. and people and people in hollywood um and australians have going how do you not 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 know about this place yeah. so yeah there's people so, that don't know see there's there's two sides to it as well isn't there you want to tell everyone and show them how amazing it is but at the same time Nah, let's keep it a nice little secret. It's beautiful. Mm. It's absolutely amazing. I'm going to head down there next year. Oh, you got to do it. And I think <laughs> that's the thing. Like, there's an there's an element where you want to try and keep things quiet. Mm -hmm. But when 
that's sometimes while big industry takes advantage of that yeah. if it's remote and there's few people. So then you're kind of left with the story. You've got to tell the story of, yeah. of what and, and bring bring these places into the land rooms of people all over the world to join the fight. Yeah, and that's it. I mean, if, if there's people out there listening to this podcast and they're not involved in Sea Shepherd and they have a genuine passion for what we've been talking about, get involved. Just get Absolutely. on the Sea Shepherd, represent, get involved. There's always something you can help with. Oh, yeah, plenty of things. And even people that think, well, I can't be on a ship and you might be even someone that, you know, can't get out there and do much physical work. Mm. There's always something that people can do, you know. For you sure, know. for sure. And then those that win the lottery, they can give us a load of money. <laughs> oh. but, uh, it's always always we'll put it to good use that's for sure. <laughs> yeah <laughs> jeff um again thank you very much for coming on the show and i appreciate it immensely um have a good afternoon and uh, we'll speak again soon you too matt thanks again uh, really enjoyed our chat thanks man bye-bye everybody this is scuba go 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 the podcast for the inquisitive diver <laughs>